0: If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand, with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get Asha Continuing Ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. We're diving into the topic of health disparities in populations with neurologically-based communication disorders. Dr. Elena Davis of Howard University returns after her episode on sports-related concussion management to discuss the ins and outs of health disparities people across our nation face after experiencing a neurological event. This is a valuable talk about the impact we can have to address health disparities. Dr. Davis discusses great tools at our disposal to ensure we're doing our part to provide consistent, equitable services for every patient. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm the host of the Speech Uncensored podcast, and I think we're ready to dive in and hear from Elena now. Hello, Elena. How are you doing? I'm doing just great. Good, good. I'm so glad to welcome you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to today's topic where we're going over health disparities in the neurogenic populations. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I have this theory that like everybody should know this, but this might be the first time people are hearing about this information. Um, What are your thoughts on how often we as SLPs are kind of getting this type of information?
1: Um, I think I would agree with you that it seems like it's something everyone should know. But um, I would be very honest in saying that I knew that it existed, but I didn't really know until I started my PhD program and kind of had that as a focus of what I was working on. Um, so it's kind of like, unless you kind of dig into it, you might not
0: actually know that health disparities exist. Okay. All right. Good. All right. Good. Okay. That <laughs> makes total sense. Um, because as I mentioned on a previous podcast with a, another guest, I did um, a partial master's program in New Zealand that was in public health. And so health disparities in the population of New Zealand was a big focus of that year-long study. And that was my first kind of taste that health disparities exist and what they look like and what the barriers are. And that just like um, struck a nerve in me. And I just get real bent out of shape when I hear about the prevalence of health disparities. And I think a big part of what really Um, upsets me about that is that a lot of these things I feel like could possibly be preventable or addressed. And so I'm very excited about hearing more about this topic and sharing and raising more awareness. All right, Elena, um, I was wondering, could you please share with our guests um, your background and your history and your work as an SLP? Yeah, sure. So um,
1: again, I am Elena Davis. uh, My students call me Dr. Davis. (laughs) I am an assistant professor at Howard University, and my focus is um, adult neurogenic communication disorders with a particular focus in traumatic brain injury, but I also address um, um, cultural appropriateness and relevance for assessments um, that are used with persons of color, and uh, primarily African Americans. Um, that is what I'm focused on. Um, I have a background of working. I started out working in the schools, and then after my graduate program, moved into the medical setting. So I've been in SNFs and long-term acute care and acute care hospitals, um, which has been my favorite, actually. Um, but I still continue to do clinical work. I do a little PRN at a nursing home, and I have a private practice. It's called overall neuro rehab, um, and then I also belong to a number of organizations. So, I belong to um, the National Black Association of Speech-Language Pathology. Um, I said that all the way wrong. National Black Association of Speech-Language and Hearing, <laughs> um, and then, and I present there pretty often. Um, I am on the executive board for the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences, um, which is a term uh, ANCDS, um, which is a really nice group. It's almost um, like everyone that you whose articles you read in Neuro goes to their mm-hmm. scientific mm-hmm. meeting. And then um, uh, I'm a member of SIG 2 with Asha, and then I'm also a certified brain injury specialist. Trainer with the Academy of Certified Brain Injury Specialists. (laughs) And of course, I belong to Asha.
0: Oh my goodness. Dr. Davis, how do you find time to do any of those things? You're doing everything. You're a part of like every group that's doing anything interesting and important in our field. (laughs) And you teach and you do other things in addition to teaching at your university. So I'm just like, how you have more days in your hour. No, I did that backwards. More hours in your day than I do because I'm impressed right now with what I'm saying.
1: I think most professors kind of have the sim a similar lifestyle, <laughs> especially when you're an assistant professor.
0: Mm. That's well, that's awesome. More power to you. Crush it, like cause you are. <laughs> All right. So now I want to segue into our six questions that help us to get to know you a little bit better and our topic before we deep dive into the topic. Okay. so your first one is how does a typical day in the life of Dr. Elena Davis play out?
1: So a typical day for me. um, So I teach late classes, so I usually don't get into the office until like around 11 or noon, which is actually kind of nice because I'm not an early bird. Um, I start out emails, uh, making sure all my lectures are together. And then depending on the day, I could either have students that are from my research group um, meeting with me or student athletes that I am either assessing or um, doing some type of treatment with or students just sitting in my office because they like to just come hang out. Um, And then I teach at night and I try to get home as fast as I can so I can take my dog out and play with him for a little bit. (laughs) And, um, you know, I like to watch TV, occasional happy hour
0: and then that's about it. (laughs) Nice. Nice. All right. So the next question. What can SLPs do with the knowledge of health disparities and neurocognitive disorders?
1: Okay, Um, so I'll keep it really brief since we're digging into that. But overall, just knowing that health disparities actually do exist and making an effort to understand why, because I think if we try to understand why they exist, it helps us to um, work with our patients a little better. Um, And then also I'll talk about a little later, understanding the communicative styles of the patient, the populations that you're working with and knowing that everyone
0: is different. Yeah, awesome. Oh, I'm like nodding my head till it's about to fall off. This is going to be such a good talk. Okay, moving forward. Next question, where can people find more information on health disparities?
1: Um, So one really great uh, website to get some resources and to find out more about the research that's happening is the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities. Um, You can get a lot of statistics from there. You can find out what's going on. There's a lot of community pushes that are occurring through that system. Um, You can also get uh, resources from uh, MedlinePlus.gov. They have a lot of information on health disparities. And ASHA also has um, has some um, articles on health disparities um, and some past presentations that have been posted. And then they also have an entire section on um, cultural competence. So you can actually go on Ash's website and you can take um, kind of like a self-analysis of your own level of cultural competence.
0: That is awesome. Ooh, I'm like going to make a note. I'm going to go do that. (laughs) I always like checking in. I think that's a valuable tool for everybody. Like we can't get complacent and think that, oh, sure, I know of something, but do Mm -hmm. you practice it? How have your values and thoughts changed since that initial encounter? Like, we're always evolving as people. So, okay, cool. (laughs) Next question. When should an SLP feel competent in their skills to address neurocognitive disorders? Oh, you know, I think that is such
1: an interesting question. Um, Because I think that competence is an ongoing process in itself. Um, So I think it could depend on the experiences that you've had in your graduate program and your clinical fellowship. Um, I feel like I felt pretty competent towards the middle of my CF because I had a lot of patients who came in with neurocognitive disorders, but there's always these new cases coming in where I feel like I still need to learn more. Uh, So I, I don't know how to give a specific on that, but I think it really depends on what the effort you put into
0: it. I think that last statement really sums it up Uh, your competency and how you feel like that is, is dependent on the effort that you put into gaining that competency. So I think you nailed it. I I would have to say, yeah, that's it. In my opinion, anyway. All right. Next question. Why are you drawn to the cognitive realm of our scope of practice? What is it about this that has just pulled you in?
1: Um, So when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I knew that I enjoyed language, science, and psychology. I didn't know how much I enjoyed learning about the brain until um, until I got into my master's program. And then when I took, when I was in the doc program, I took neurophysiology and that was actually one of my favorite courses. <laughs> Not most people's top pick, but I loved it. And I think that, you know, the brain is so amazing in the way that it's designed to like Kind of, you know, maneuver us through life. It protects us from a lot of things. And it's kind of, it's like, I imagine it as like our computer database and the cognition part is where all the processing and everything takes place. But if they're, in that database, if there's one little glitch, it can affect everything. And that's the same thing with, with our patients. Um, one little glitch impacts how they function and interact with other people. And so I was really drawn to PBI mostly because of how it impacts them socially and their quality of life. And I think as an SLP, we have such a unique opportunity to be able to help people in that way.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. All right. And then our last question before we dive into our discussion Who would you say you are most like? What would be your primary identity right now? Are you a researcher, a scientist, a professor, a teacher, a mentor? a speech and language pathologist, or a clinician?
1: Oh, goodness. Hmm.
0: I would say, you know what, I actually would probably
1: go with mentor. Um, And I think mentor, and it encompasses all of the others. Uh, My favorite thing right now is mentoring students in my research lab, and watching them go through the process of like, not really being interested in research, but then once they like get the data and analyze it, like their minds just opening up to it. Um, and I think that in teaching and training them. And so I guess it's still a teacher, too, <laughs> because when you're mentoring, you're also teaching. And so um, I think that's where I probably put myself the
0: most. Awesome. Cool. That was kind of a a weird little question that I thought of, but I was just really curious, like how somebody would receive it and interpret it. So thanks for kind of entertaining me on that one. (laughs) All right. So now we're ready to dive into our discussion about health disparities. So let's start at the beginning, at the basis. Um, Tell me, what is a health disparity? Uh, What does it mean?
1: Okay, Um, so I did want to just start with saying um, you'll hear a lot of the um, statistics and things that I reference will come from um, Dr. Joan Payne's um, textbook, um, which I supplied the link for um, because she really focused on health disparities, um, particularly in neurogenic communication disorders, and that's where my understanding came from. So health disparities. They're basically inequalities that exist in care and diseases for particular groups. So the National Institute of Health um defines it as, and I'm going to read this one, the difference in the incidence, prevalence, morbidity, mortality, and burden of diseases and other adverse health conditions that exist among specific population groups. So it could be um, just that it occurs more in one group, one group uh, may um, may not live long because of a certain type of disease, um, or one group may um, experience something more than the other. And it's the uh, persons of color who tend to have the highest disparities um, along the negative realm um, that we're talking about. Um, health disparities are usually caused by... Um, this longstanding history of poverty that has existed um, within the nation, um, there's been a discrimination in access to health care. Um, and I'll mention some of those things a little later. Um, not having access um, to, el- to health care or medical care early in life can make a difference. Um, And then just differences in like the collected wealth within neighborhoods for affected populations, as well as poor living and working situations. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then as far as like some of the statistics um, for health disparity populations, um, they're more likely to, people who within those populations are more likely to have more severe strokes at an earlier age. And this could be like, between 18 to 34 or like the 35 to 49 group, um, as well as more likely to have recurrent strokes. And this you see um, African-Americans and Hispanic Americans are two times more likely than non-Hispanic whites to have a recurrent stroke. And and we're also more likely to have a slower recovery. Um, So when we talk about the incidence of disability, um, for certain groups, the greatest is among African-American females. Then there's then it's non-Hispanic white females, then African-American males and then non-Hispanic white males. Okay. Um, a few more things. Um, so a lot of times we see um, stroke. A stroke is one of the primary things that we talk about, especially because we're talking about neurogenic communication disorders. But what leads to that um, are these chronic diseases. So um, African-Americans who are 35 to 64 years old are 50% more likely to have high blood pressure than non-Hispanic whites. And a lot of that um, has been correlated to um, issues of racism as well as stress exposure. And African-Americans who are 18 to 49 are two times more likely to die from heart disease than non-Hispanic. Um, When we talk about stroke in the United States, um, we actually have the highest prevalence in a part of the nation we call the stroke belt, Um, and it is the southeastern region of the United States, and it includes Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, uh, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia, where there's also a higher proportion of African Americans. I'm, I'm from Texas. Uh, I don't know if you can hear it when I talk, but um, I actually was surprised that they weren't on that list. But I know that those numbers are still pretty high there as well. And then in addition to the chronic diseases, there's also the lifestyle contributors that can lead to uh, stroke and other health disparities, which include obesity. Obesity is a big issue with African Americans, Mexican Americans, and um, really, really high in um, Pacific Islanders. Um, I lived Mm. in Hawaii for two years, and there was a really big push um, to decrease the obesity there because a lot of their risk factors um, are very similar to um, African Americans here in the United States. Uh, Well, they're in the United States too. Um, But the other (laughs) lifestyle contributors are. Um alcoholism, smoking, and then the liber- limited um access
0: to health care okay, that's a really well rounded like crash course and what are health disparities, who they affect, and how- why they exist, like what are those factors that are resulting in these big disparities, or at least some of them like they're yeah, there's like a lot to unpack there. Why they exist and then of course then, you know, what is our role in that. So um okay. So let me collect my thoughts for a hot second. I think you did a great job in explaining why or sorry, the factors that they exist, the factors that contribute to the health disparities. So, let's talk about why they exist. Why is this just going to be like a like a conversation about just current political climate or our history and how this has shaped our country? Um, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, so well that that definitely plays a role. Um, so if we know that there's been discrimination and access to care and things like that, but there there are other factors. Um, so when we talk about health literacy. Um, the ability to to read and understand medical or health information that is presented to you, Um, we see also disparities within that realm where uh, particular groups um, either may not be able to read the information, but also um, even if they can read it, they may not understand everything that they read. Um, And so we know that some of our Uh, Patients that we see from the oldest old population that might be like 80s and up um, some of them only went to elementary school. um, Maybe didn't finish high school because maybe they had to go work or something like that. And so you get you get those persons coming in and when a medical professional is speaking to them in medical terminology, but not breaking it down to layman's terms. That makes it very challenging. to to understand and to remain compliant to the things you're supposed to do. And so if there's a lack of health literacy, then we also run the risk of noncompliance, which is one of the things that accounts for return to the hospital because you had a recurrent stroke, because you didn't follow all of the instructions that were given to you, or if you don't completely understand what the disorder is that you have, you may not take care of it as well. Um another thing with health literacy um that I also like to bring up is that um you know understanding um uh, the health um the healthcare plans that are available to you. So um there is a a former Asha president, um Dr. Paul Rayo, um did a presentation one uh for us in Hawaii once and he talked about health literacy and was telling us that most most people um educated or not don't always understand all the terminology that's related to um, the healthcare policies and i know i have to ask a lot of questions to my human resource person (laughs) as well to make sure i'm choosing the best plan and so if you don't understand everything you're reading you may choose a plan that's not beneficial to you um if you um you may choose a plan that may not offer the things that you truly need or, um, you know, just kind of put you in a position where you may have to spend more money, which may lead you to not getting the care that you need. Um, and so I guess that kind of puts me into the, the healthcare care realm. And so I'll kind of speak about that in just a general sense. Um, so we know that in 2000, the U.S. signed the um, Minority Health and Health Disparities uh, Research and Education Act. And that's actually what helped to establish the National Institute for Minority Health and Health Disparities. So if you think about that, it's just been about 20 years since this has existed, um, which also will let you see why some of the information is kind of dated further back. Um, We still need a lot of information now. And then it was 10 years ago that President Barack Obama signed the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act into place. And that act was pretty good in that it did make efforts to provide access to everyone. However, with everything, I think that kind of comes in, comes in from both sides of the parties, um, there are some flaws. So we see that there are some plans that are still not that affordable depending on your level of income. So um, one example is that like a retired couple would have to make a decision about receiving less of their retirement annually just to have lower insurance rates because if they take just a couple thousand more it makes their um premiums extremely high and so um they end up they end up getting something that costs a little lower so they can still live but then they may have really high deductibles at the same time and so you can see how people would make those decisions of, oh, I might not really need to go to speech therapy, Um, it's not necessary for me right now, or I don't need to go get these preventative care checkups because they're trying to save money so they can live. Um, And then I'll also just kind of touch into um, when we talk about groups and not having access or or being underrepresented in terms of having health care, um, in addition to race, there's also um, people, those who are living with AIDS, uh, returning vets who have blast injuries, um, tend to have a lot of issues sometimes with their healthcare systems and the VA and things like that. And then um, we also have to remember people who are incarcerated as well as the homeless. And so they also add to that group of people with health disparities. Um, HIV, you might be wondering, why would you bring that up? But later in life, um, HIV and AIDS can lead to dementia. And so these will be our patients too. And the highest groups right now, um, I think for um, the diagnosis rates are really high among African-Americans and Hispanics. Um, But I think um, African-Americans are accounted for 44% of the new HIV infections followed by non-Hispanic whites who are at 31 percent and then Hispanic Latinos who are at 21 percent. And our older adults are also contracting AIDS at really high rates, um, because I think there's a thought that if I'm older, condoms might not be as a, as much of a need. <laughs> I'm not really sure, but we're, we've seen that increase as well um, here recently. So. Um, So that's health literacy that um, I talked about, the healthcare system, and then a couple of other things to um, think about, um, particularly for African-Americans and and some other groups too. um, A lack of trust um, within the healthcare system is really strong, particularly for older Black adults. Um, There are the, there's a long history of not being treated the same. African Americans still um, are still think about the Tuskegee studies, um, where um, the um, the men, uh, the Tuskegee Airmen, were infected with intentionally with syphilis. Um, just to see what would happen. Um, and then the story of Henrietta Lacks, whose cells were being utilized in research without her consent. And so a lot of times people are like, I don't want that doctor taking my blood and I don't want to tell them all of my information because they have this fear that they're not going to be treated well. Um, uh, an example that I have, um, and it's not that severe, but um, but still severe in its own. I had a patient this past summer And she um, she had lived in Baltimore in a primarily black neighborhood for pretty much all her life, pretty much. And she came her son put her in his nursing home where (laughs) there was only one other black person there. And she never really talked a lot. She never said anything. But then when I went in her room, she started telling me about all this pain she was in and how her stomach hurt and she just didn't feel good. And I said, well, have you told the nurses this? And she said, No, I don't want to bother them. I, I don't I can't tell them what's wrong with me. They're not gonna listen. And I was like, no, ma'am, that's what we're here for. And so I had to like bring in a nurse and tell them what was going on and let them know that I could see that she had a barrier put up that she was just gonna suffer because she didn't wanna bother and she didn't want to share and she didn't think she would be treated fairly. And it and it wasn't that she was being treated any differently. It was just the mindset um, which is which is heartbreaking to see that people would feel that
0: way right Um, I was literally thinking in my head like that is a heartbreaking story like that is Mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to feel that way ever and especially when they're in a place where their care is up to somebody else that they're relying on them you know that's not what you want to hear, but that's the truth. that's what people experience and that's that's what they're bringing with them into those settings and so you know step one is to know that that could be at play and to to have a sensitivity to it and an awareness of it that there could be factors that will limit someone from reaching out and saying, "I'm in pain or I need help with something
1: exactly exactly
0: um and then um, just,
1: a, just a few more, I think I said that a second ago, but <laughs> um, the socioeconomic status we know plays a role when we talk about long-standing poverty. Um, when we talk, when we think about how obesity and diabetes and um, hypertension and high cholesterol and all those things come into play, um, you know, our first suggestion is to eat healthy, right? But depending on where you live, eating healthy might not be that easy of an option. Um, The Department of Agriculture estimated that 40 percent of U.S. households don't have easy access to healthy food options. And it's even more significant in your minority communities. Um, There, like even where I live, there's one end of the street where you can get whole foods. Um, but then there's another end of the street where there's a grocery store where you have to search um, just to get like a healthy brand. Um there was I went into this one grocery store one day and there were no like even the the um, frozen dinners, like no healthy choice. It was just frozen pizza. Um, and that still exists where it's hard to get healthy food options. You may see more fast food places, um, things that cost less um and so even when we tell someone okay you got to eat healthier we have to also consider if they don't have access how are ways that we can also direct them into that um where they can still afford um and have access to what they need Um, so something to consider uh people who have high risk occupations so um African Americans and Mexican Americans tend to have very high risk occupations where they experience a lot of injury, illness, and stress. Um, and sometimes these jobs, they may not have insurance plans. Also, although now you, they get companies get taxed if they don't, <laughs> if they don't do that. But um, but that still exists unemployment is a factor. And then um, another thing that we often don't think about with health disparities, um, and this is directly from my mentor, Dr. Joan Payne, she focused a lot on caregivers. And um, caregivers, the average caregiver is a middle-aged African-American woman. Um, because And a lot of that is within the culture, it's not considered, Um, okay to send your parent to a nursing home. And so we will care for them. um, And a lot of other cultures do the same thing. We will care for them while ignoring the things that we need to be cared for at the same time. And so that stress and overeating and um, maybe having to decrease your work time and all of that takes a toll. Mm -hmm. And you may put yourself on the back burner
0: to Mm -hmm. care for
1: your, um, your loved
0: one. Dr. Davis, you really brought it today. I am so like, yes, this is like meeting all my needs right now. This is so good. Um, I just wanted to take a a moment and to point out one of the articles that will be in the resource list on the show notes uh, was by Johnson and company in from 2017. And they cited, as you've mentioned, health literacy and insurance type as factors that influence the health disparities between non-Hispanic white and Black Americans post-stroke when reading level and injury severity were controlled. So they're matching reading level, which may also kind of be a term for education level as well, um, and the severity of the, the stroke and finding that it's it's the health literacy. It's what they understand about health, what they've been exposed to and what they understand about it. So, and as you mentioned, like insurance, like, are they on the right plan? Are they on a plan that's going to provide for their needs during the hospital stay and after the hospital stay for therapy needs? Um, how many times have we heard from patients that yeah they've got insurance but the copay is too high they can't afford to come in even with the copay or the deductible or the co insurance like all these things that kind of layer on and become barriers for people getting the treatment and the access and the care that they need right exactly and then you just went to like so many other levels like I'm furiously over here like making notes and scribbling everything down. like oh it's so good these things are so important for us to know and to be aware of um because that's where you start you start with the knowledge and so now are we ready to go into the next leg of our discussion and it's like okay we know these things what are we going to do about it what can we do about it how do we work with this all right, take it away.
1: Okay, um, yeah. So I, um, I'm very lucky in that I get to talk about health disparities a lot in my classes. Um, and so when I when I teach this topic in class, I discuss first gaining knowledge about the people you serve, um, asking questions because people always say, "Well, how am I really supposed to know what each group does?" Yeah. You just have to ask people questions and not be afraid. <laughs> Seriously, say that again. Nice and slow. Nice and loud. loud. Yeah. Ask people questions and do not be afraid. Um, Actually, people respect that a lot more and it makes it that's what breaks down that wall of of fear or a lack of trust. Because once I know that you want to learn about me and learn about the care that I want to receive, it makes me want to open up to you more. Um, um, at the basic level, asking patients to restate information that you've given them and avoiding those yes/ no questions. And if you're an SLP who's worked with Vernicke's aphasia, then you probably know that already. Yes, no can be tricky, right? Um, but that's that's really, really important is that you know, um, so what, what did you, what did you hear me say? you know, and finding a way to, to ask them in a way that doesn't sound condescending at the same time um, taken information, you know, we always have like our little, um, our portfolio of health information and things that we want to share. And I've, I've, um, saw on different things where SLPs will say, well, I gave this patient an article, I'm thinking, is your patient really going to read an article, you know? <laughs> and so, um, you know, I mean,
0: that's, that's yeah. tough. I mean, I barely have a health literacy to understand most articles I try to read. Like, it's yeah. hard. Stuff. Like, there yeah. is some complicated language in there. And when they get into the statistics, they've lost me. So. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, in my classes, um, we do activities where they modify um, health material so that it is written in layman's terms. Um, We may do, um, there's also been research looking at the difference between expository information, like the pamphlets we normally get, and narratives, um, like using um, stories. Um, There's a big part of um, uh, uh, medicine right now that they focus on health literacy and they use stories to share. And most um, cultural groups prefer the stories um, because it's easier to relate to um and so those um those are some things as far as like tools that we can incorporate um and this may be uh just touch, just touching the surface of something i really really love to talk about is um a lot of uh my work with culturally diverse patients focuses on cognitive and communicative styles so i like to look at language from like a macro level in which communicative competence is highly important so Um, Can they understand the information and and can they get their own message across? And so cognitive styles are the way that we um, problem solve. And it could be either analytical or very holistic. Um, And it depends. It's mostly dependent on how we grew up. So many African-Americans and other communal groups tend to prefer a more holistic cognitive style, which is why narratives um work more because a lot of our cultures are based on oral tradition. so if you tell me a story oh that makes sense that you know Mr. Johnson had to like uh change his eating because he had a stroke the other day you know if I can put it in the context of a story it makes a lot more sense um and then the analytical analytical style is more well I, I think I skipped the cognitive style is looking at the whole or the gist of a situation where analytical is where problems are kind of broken down into a step by step like systematic manner, um, and then communicative styles is more of the style in which one expresses their language, which can differ based on cultural experiences so um not so much of just focusing on a a e because at the end of the day if i if you know that I speak a a e it doesn't really tell you about how I understand or process information. you just know that i um use my words in a different way but if you look at the way i communicate like do i give you short concise answers because that is a communicative style of a lot of especially older african americans one phrase i've told you everything you need to know or a lot of things are inferred um and then when you think about a lot of our assessments in speech pathology or in general a lot of um And I thought about this, too, when I was reading through the Johnson article Um, sometimes or a lot of times you might see poorer scores for um, African-Americans with and without impairments just because the standardized assessments are more analytical. And so if we are not aware of communicative differences or those cognitive styles, we might be scoring them lower just because of how they respond. Um, My favorite examples at I'm sure my students are, I've just run into the ground with um, it on a one of our standardized tests It uh, the, the RIPA it at the problem solving section says, please be as accurate as you can and tell me how you would solve these situations. And then it says, what would you do if your car ran out of gas? Right. And I think for most of us, we would say I call triple A. But the test requires a person to give you a three part response. Um, but if you just give that simple response, then you don't necessarily get the highest score of a three, you get a lower score. And so, in some instances, we may be um, that's one of the things that we can think about because we can't really change, um, we can't change a lot of those in kind of other factors that we talked about today. But on our end, if we're looking at how we rate someone on a test and what we consider and are they actually answering the question just answering it in a different way we can avoid misdiagnosis um, or over diagnosing someone else with a higher severity than they actually have Um, i think one another thing that i also like to point out to my students because i think we've all kind of done this at some point is we assume that because someone was born here or grew up here that we automatically assimilate to whatever is considered to be the standard for mainstream America but that's not the case um so i i still have a very holistic um way of problem solving um i still use a lot of aae um uh, when i speak when i teach when i present it doesn't go away and so um we have to also remember that our cultural
0: differences don't change with age. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, um, for our international listeners, for people who aren't aware, AAE is oh. African-American English. Thank you.
1: <laughs> no
0: problem. I just like any acronyms we use, I always try to explain them um, just in case. There might be that one person who's like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. That is so good. Oh, this is so good. Okay. All right. So um, this may be a shot in the dark. Uh, Are there any tools we can incorporate into our practice um, that go beyond an awareness and knowledge, um, something that may help us account for any differences?
1: Um. Yeah, um, and so it still kind of incorporates some of that awareness and knowledge, but um, there is um, a website um, called the Healthcare Chaplaincy, and they actually have really great material on um, cultural and spiritual sensitivity. Um, Actually, I didn't bring up religion, but that is um, a major major factor um, with a lot of different groups. Um, And especially um, African-Americans, we um, that tends to be a major factor in our lives. Um, But this I I really like this um, program because it addresses diversity uh, from a perspective in which we should view all people um, and any differences that exist. But it starts with a self analysis. And so it really it gives you all these different situations, but it looks at how you handle and respond to it. And so first it is our awareness, which is um, developing our ability to see when and how communication is breaking down or could break down. Um, I think that can be one of the key factors that we miss is um, noticing when there's a breakdown in communication. Um, Even for us as communication specialists, we can miss that mark if we're not paying attention. And then the next part of that is emotions. What are the being honest about the emotions that we experience when the values and customs are different from our own? Because we all have mm-hmm. our way of they should be doing this, they shouldn't do that. Um my favorite example is this little when I worked in the schools, I had this little boy who was from um he was from some country in Africa, I cannot remember which one it was, but he would just get so angry when things didn't go his way. And his mother told us that within their culture they do not. They're not supposed to tell him no. And we're like, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> and so but even, even though we didn't agree, we have to we had to find some form of common ground to make sure that he could make it through school appropriately, um, you know, considering that factor. And so being honest about our emotions, because a lot of times our emotions of what we think is supposed to happen is. Um, is what we project onto other people, um, and that and that also kind of plays into cognitive styles because whatever our preferred cognitive style is, that's the one we teach in. Um, yeah. And then so it's awareness, emotions, and then knowledge. So what facts do you know about a cultural group? Um, there, there is also um, a document that I I can share it with you. It has some very general. Overarching things to know about a lot, many, many different cultural and religious groups, um but you have to take it with a grain of salt because everything is not true. Because it said that most African Americans tend to celebrate Kwanzaa, and I, I don't celebrate that. But, um, um, but knowing, like, what do you know, and how do you look at your awareness, your emotions, and then what you actually know to be true about a cultural group. And then your skills. How do you communicate um, with the person, recognize those encounter- cross cultural encounters, manage your emotions, and then find the compromise to reach a solution? Um, so I, I love that program so much. I use it in my classes. Um, and I think that it, it does help to make you more well-rounded because I, I think that you know, we can learn as much as we can about a specific group, but there's always gonna be someone who's outside of the box. But if we look at those um those four areas and um and are sensitive to those things, I think we um do better in breaking down those disparities.
0: Excellent. All right. As we're coming up to time, mm-hmm. is there anything else you'd like to cover? Um are you ready to Um, just kind of present your closing thoughts?
1: Um, I think, I feel like I've covered quite a bit um, (laughs) and then kind of touched on things that I thought I forgot. Um, But I think, um, you know, really looking into culturally appropriate assessment, um, it's not the easiest thing to identify because we learn the test and we kind of go through the motions, but paying attention to differences that may exist um not not being afraid to like step outside of what the test tells you to ask and asking questions in a different way um and um understanding those communicative styles i think that would be one of the <laughs> one of the main things that would help um especially in our field um because that's technically that's what we're supposed to be able to do is understand the styles um And just ensuring that we're communicating effectively with people Um, and going from the very beginning, knowing that health disparities do exist and and being knowledgeable of that.
0: Excellent. All right. Yeah. And I kind of want to touch back on something you mentioned earlier about like getting over our fear and then just asking the person, you know, like, Don't be scared of maybe appearing ignorant or uh, unknowledgeable in something like that's okay. Like, go ahead and ask them and have like a story to illustrate it. It's not a great story, but it's slightly amusing. So I'm going to share it. And it was way back when I was in grad school and they kind of doubled us up to do evaluations so that like two graduate clinicians could learn how to give an assessment and get that experience. And so we were doing a generative naming task. And so the the person was just naming words, right? Given our, like, what was it? Our prompt. And we were writing them down and my colleague and I came up with different number of words that were uh, correct, so to speak, that would fit our prompt. And so we reviewed like our discrepancy and she was like, well, gorp is not a word. And I was like, actually it is. She's like, it's not a word, Leanne. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. And I was like, well, I think he's a hiker or like a backpacker or just an outdoorsy person. Gorp is just another name for trail mix. And I was like, we can ask him and find out. But like, I I've, I've had experience with that word and so that's what it is. And she just didn't have experience with the word. It didn't sound like anything else she'd ever heard. It does. It sounds like a made-up word. Uh-huh. But another clue was that like he did not have Wernicke's aphasia or any anything else going on with him that would make non-words an option. Right. And so, you know, that's another thing like you have to you have to consider if you don't recognize the word That just might be your limited experience. Mm -hmm. And so ask, like, I just want to go back over this one word. Can you tell me what it was again? Can you tell me what that is? Like, I'm not familiar with it. And I've done that in my practice, obviously, you know, since graduating and we're doing um, a generative naming task and they give me a word and I'm like, not sure what that is. Like, I've learned things from people like that's, that's, that's the thing. So yeah, ask. (laughs) Yes. Good. And and Google can be your friend too. <laughs> oh, I will pull up Google. Like yeah, patients ask me things all the time. And I'm like, you know what? We're going to go consult the Google now. So <laughs> oh, I love it. All right. Well, Dr. Davis, this has been wonderful as usual. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge, your experience, your expertise in this area. Um, I hope that people find value in it and they go digging into the show notes and access all the wonderful resources that you've collected and sent over for me to post up there. So thank you so much. Oh, and thank you. Excellent. Good, good. I love it. Thank you. Dr. Davis is a treasure and has provided a wealth of information in the show notes on speechuncensored.com. I couldn't help myself and I added a few links for some additional resources that describe health disparities in New Zealand, where I first learned that this type of thing exists back in 2007 when I studied public health there. And I just really enjoyed seeing how another country approaches this work and then the steps that they've taken to ensure equity in health care. I think we have a lot we can learn from everyone else out there doing the same kind of work, but approaching it with a different perspective, maybe. Uh, so I just wanted to share that information with you as well, and it's up in the show notes. Dr. Amanda Stead of Pacific University is joining me next week to discuss the SLP's role in end-of-life care. It's a thoughtful look into the experience of dying in America, patient and family values at the end of life, as well as the important role that SLPs play in caring for people near the end of life. Amanda does an amazing job illustrating how to have sensitive conversations and navigate emotionally charged waters. It's a really good conversation. I think you guys are going to like it. I mean, I did. (laughs) All right, so next up, I'd like to share this review of the podcast. Reggie says, I'm just starting my CFY, and this is a great way to jump into new topics from experienced SLPs and other professionals. And I agree, Reggie. Thank you so much for sharing your review on Apple Podcasts. I really enjoy the feedback I receive through the reviews and strive to always meet your five-star ratings. Now I want you to get out there and continue to nourish your brain so that your practice flourishes. Till next week, friends.